Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashness and Guy Wilkinson. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the IB Green Minds podcast. My name is Phoebe Scott, and today I'm joined by Dr. AJ Gambier. AJ is a senior research fellow at the Imperial College London Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. His research addresses how society can transition to a low-carbon economy, considering the technologies and measures required to do so. Before joining Imperial, AJ was the team leader for EU and international climate change economics at the UK Government Department for Energy and Climate Change. He's also worked in the UK's Office for Climate Change and in the UK Committee on Climate Change. AJ holds an MEng in Chemical Engineering from Cambridge, an MSc in Development Economics from SOAS, and a PhD in Energy Economics from the Imperial College Centre for Environmental Policy. AJ, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks very much for inviting me, Phoebe. I thought it would be helpful to start off by talking about your career to date. How do you feel that transitioning between working for the government and also working in academia has helped you to develop your career to where you are today? So I've been at Imperial College and an academic for about coming up to 11 years now. And before that, I was a government civil servant for about six years. And then I actually had another career before that where I was uh, working in finance and management consultancy for about six years as well. So academia is, if you like, my third career. I've really benefited, I think, from the variety, seeing what life is like in private corporations and different government departments and then the very different field of academia. So one thing that's really struck me over the last few years is the extent to which I learned skills and ways of working which maybe not everyone in academia has and of course academics have taught me a lot about how to work particularly around research writing for scientific journals publishing and disseminating research and evidence that I didn't know about uh, beforehand so there's been a good sort of two-way learning process from my perspective I think the most important thing that I've benefited from coming from the government is uh, having this really broad and excellent contact network. So I have a nice sort of channel into departments like the Business Energy and Industrial Strategy Department, where I have friends and former colleagues. And that's really useful in terms of talking about some of the research I'm doing or asking them what's important to them at this particular point in time. So that's been a real boon in terms of helping my academic career. And then I think probably the other really important thing is that working in government on climate change gave me a real appreciation of what real world policy concerns are around climate change and particularly around mitigation of climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So as an academic, I think it can sometimes be quite difficult to think of a research question or research area, which is both interesting, but also real world relevant to what's going on right now in the world. And coming from the government where there was lots and lots of focus on preparing for COPs, which I'm sure we'll talk about quite soon, you know, it gives me a real sense of what's important, what's really worth researching to help drive this agenda of climate change mitigation forward. I find it interesting you mentioned you still have very good connections with the government and that follows on nicely to my next question. To what extent do you think that academics can truly influence policy? And we're seeing this definitely during the COVID pandemic, particularly with Imperial's own research team looking at spreading of infectious diseases. Do you think that that also can be applicable for climate change and climate change research feeding into climate change policy? Most certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you talk about academics influencing policy, you don't really need to look much further beyond the 
the, the paper that Neil Ferguson and Imperial colleagues published around the middle of March last year, which is widely believed to have changed the direction of the government's actions in terms of lockdowns and the way that it responded to the pandemic, certainly in those early weeks and months. And so that's unarguable that academics, through their modelling and analysis, helped to influence policy very, very heavily. I think we can definitely see parallels between managing and responding to the pandemic and managing and responding to climate change. I think and I would hope that there's, if there wasn't before, and I think there already was before pandemic, there's there's now even more openness to understanding what the scientific evidence, what the modelling can, can show us around preparing for climate change and mitigating climate change. So I think that there's already a good and fairly healthy exchange of information and indeed people between academia and government. You only need to look at the current chief scientific advisor of Bayes, Paul Monks, to see that he's got a, an academic background. Previous chief scientific advisors as well, David Mackay, came into the then Department of Energy and Climate Change at the time that I was still there and had a very, very influential effect in terms of setting out feasible pathways to at the time, an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, which in the UK at least has now been up to 100% reduction in terms of net greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So there are some really solid examples of academics coming in and influencing the government. I think that there are also some really great people working in the civil service that are just alive to academic research and evidence, and they will be very, very receptive of lots of new ideas and research, and they can then convey that research to ministers, special advisors, and other decision makers within the government itself. So definitely academics can influence policy. It depends on how, if you like, entrepreneurial or well or good they are at marketing their research and ideas. And I think that, you know, through social media channels, blog posts and through other mechanisms, academics, the best academics are really, really good at not just publishing papers, but then making a big song and dance about those papers so that they get noticed uh, and then ultimately do over time influence policy directions. Do you feel that working in the private sector, as you mentioned, for the first portion of your career, has that sharpened your commerciality in that respect? I haven't really reflected on that. I mean, I think that one thing I undeniably have an appreciation for is where private sector companies are coming from. And I think a career entirely in the public sector would perhaps not have given me as much appreciation that one of the things that we really need to do with climate change, for example, is change the incentives for private companies who are focused still on shorter term profits or perhaps longer term gains in market share and increases in revenues. It's allowed me to have a, a fairly deep appreciation of how the incentives for those companies can be changed or should be changed, and also what the limitations of changing those incentives are as well. So probably psychologically, it is quite important to have sat within private corporations for six years or so and understood how little focused they are on the public good, if you like. You know, they are focused on themselves. They are focused on surviving and thriving within the market context that they are given. Whereas when one's sitting outside of those private corporations and in, in the public sector or in the research sector, one is thinking much more from a helicopter view about what context those private corporations operate within. So I think being able to see it from both sides has been a real advantage, sure. Absolutely. And we'll touch back on this point later, but you alluded to the point around how we decouple economic growth from carbon emissions. And I think that's really interesting from a private sector versus a public sector perspective as to the machinations of that. But I just firstly wanted to talk about your 
years went working for the UK government and I was wondering if there was a particular piece of policy or particular project which you enjoyed working on the most. Yes, I was really lucky in the work that I did in the government. I was working in the cabinet office. I was actually working in the Prime Minister's strategy unit when Tony Blair was the PM in 2006. And I was working on social exclusion and social care. And at that time, one of my colleagues in the PM strategy unit was setting up a new office for climate change. And that was within what was then the department, I think it still is now, the Department for uh, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA. That sat within DEFRA, but it was designed to sit across a number of different government departments. And I applied for a position in the new Office for Climate Change and got that. And that was in October 2006. And I think on my very first day, I was sitting in the office and just familiarising myself with my new workplace. And the then environment minister and the head, the, the sort of ministerial head of the Office for Climate Change, David Miliband, was striding past. And he I think, gave me a copy of this newly published Stern Review, literally hot off the press that day, I think, and said, I'm going to a press briefing. Do you work on climate change? And I said, yes. And he said, well, can you accompany me? Because they're going to ask me lots of questions about the new Stern Review. So that was kind of in at the deep end, but also really lucky because I started working on climate change in the government at a time when it was a really, really big issue, very big issue in terms of the media as well, and people's concerns about issues that they cared about climate change and environment was polling very high actually in 2006-2007. So that got me stuck in and the first thing I worked on in the Office for Climate Change was the Climate Change Bill. There'd been a lot of pressure from both David Cameron's Tory party and from within the then in power Labour Party to lay a bill before Parliament and develop a Climate Change Act and the UK went on to be the first country in the world to have a legislated greenhouse gas emissions reduction target under the Climate Change Act. And so I was very fortunate to be working on the initial architecture of that climate change bill, which then went on to enter Parliament and be debated for about a year to 18 months, and which then culminated in in the passing of the Climate Change Act 2008 in, I think it was December 2008. So that was a really great project to have worked on in retrospect. I still count that, I think, as probably the most impactful or influential thing that I've done in my whole almost 15 years working on climate change. So it started with a high. It's not really got sort of lower since then, but I really look back at that moment in the the six months or so that I was working on the development of the bill as a really great time to do something that's gone on to have enduring impact in terms of steering where the UK is going. This might be a semi-naive outsider perspective, but you mentioned that climate change as an issue was polling very highly around 2005, 2006, 2007, and obviously culminating in the Climate Change Act being passed in 2008, as you mentioned. But do you feel that that dropped off the focus a bit due to the financial crisis and Brexit and all the other issues which have been bubbling up in society since then? I mean, we saw more recently the UK committing to 2050, to net zero by 2050, but it does feel from a layman's view that hasn't been so much of a focus. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think many people have seen charts of polling results and the sort of issues that concern people over time. And, you know, there's tended to be a bit of a mirror image between economic concerns and, and environmental concerns. So when everyone's concerned about the economy, then environment is way down the priority list and, and vice versa. And 
think it's no surprise or coincidence that climate change and environment was polling high in 2006-7, as that was a period that had followed about 11 or 12 years of uninterrupted economic growth in the UK, you know, a real sort of golden period of immense increase in prosperity and so on. So, of course, the financial crisis then that happened yeah, it actually happened pretty much as the Climate Change Act was getting passed in late 2008, or at least the ramifications of it started to be really felt across the world at that time. The, the beginning of it, of course, happened a year or more earlier. But, you know, it was no it's no surprise then that a decade, if you like, followed of less focus on climate and environment. I think I, I think one observation, though, is that Within that context, it is remarkable that the Paris Agreement of 2015 then actually got passed and ultimately ratified because the the 2010s, if you like, were a tumultuous decade that started with the global financial crisis and we saw all sorts of disruptions. You know, we saw the, the, the Russian annexation, if you like, of Crimea. We saw pressure on NATO. We saw Brexit Trump. We saw all sorts of disruptive potentially destabilizing changes in society, in technology, the rise of nationalism, the rise of algorithms. You know, I could go on. I spend quite a lot of time thinking about and, and riffing on the sort of crazy disruptions that we saw in the last decade. So within the context of those disruptions, for the world to have come together successfully in 2015 and agreed to tackle climate change in Paris in a very ambitious way, I think was such a precious achievement. We're just starting to see how precious that achievement is now in terms of references to the Paris Agreement with the Dutch decision on on Shell, for example, over the last few weeks. And the fact that it really sets the context in which a number of countries are now setting mid-century net zero targets and hopefully starting to up their ambition in terms of the initial Paris pledges that they made back in 2015, the nationally determined contributions, where there will be a large amount of focus in COP26 this year around how countries can up the ambition in their NDCs, those nationally determined contributions, and present convincing strategies that they are on a pathway to net zero as the century unfolds. So, you know, in summary, I think, yes, environment did fall down quite a few rungs down the ladder in terms of the relative concern around it compared to all of the other things that we were seeing over the last decade. But it hung on in there. And I think it's coming back very strongly now, particularly in light of the realisation post-COVID, or really in the middle of COVID, as we still are, that if we play Russian roulette, if you like, with risks that are facing us, then those risks are going to come back and haunt us and cost us a lot of money and cause a lot of suffering. So I think that climate change is very much back on the agenda now. And the next few years will be really, really interesting to see how, if hopefully economies around the world recover, whether they recover with a newfound wisdom towards how to grow in a sustainable way or how to develop sustainably. It's interesting thinking about COVID and climate in that ideally you'd hope that these grand ambitions to build back greener, all that similar rhetoric would actually feed through into policy enactment. But if you look at emissions in China, it was since summer last year, it was almost back to normal again. So I think that was quite interesting in terms of how that actually feeds into practice. But it also nicely follows on to one of my other questions on COP26, which you did touch on just now. Apart from NDCs, are there any other key points that you think really are crucial to nail down in COP26 or that you would like to see foregrounded? 
Yeah, I've thought about this a little. I think there are people out there that are much more grounded in the mechanics of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change COP process, the conference of the parties or the annual conference where nations of the world come together to discuss the state of play of climate negotiations and what they want to do going forward. I think that the thing I really want to see is detail in COP26. And I think that if you look across media commentators, those speaking from the position of NGOs and civil society, that is one of the biggest concerns. It's that there is this big sort of jamboree, if you like, of lots of countries coming together in Glasgow towards the end of this year, but with no firm and really detailed plan of how to get country X to very, very concretely set its ambition for 2030 and 2050 and beyond, both in terms of emissions reductions, which are Paris compliant. We know what that means. We know that means an approximate sort of halving of emissions at a global level by 2030, and then towards net zero carbon dioxide emissions, at least by about mid-century. So we know from science and the modelling what needs to be done to give us a decent chance of staying below one and a half degrees Celsius. So we really need detail. We really need tangible, credible plans to be put on the table by those that haven't yet submitted their new, upgraded or more ambitious NDCs. And then we need finance as well. And, you know, there were some announcements and commitments at the recent G7 meeting in June last month. And they talked about this figure that's been bandied around now for 12 years or so, $100 billion of developed to developing country finance. It was couched in terms of both private and public sector. There are many that believe it should be government to government finance or it should be pure public finance of $100 billion that then leverages more private finance. You could argue that there's already several billions flowing just through private to private finance, you know, supporting renewables and so on and so forth. So I think there was a general sort of sense that the G7 communique on climate finance was a little underwhelming, that the commitments on climate change sounded good, but still don't really have the substance. And I think above all, that's what we need coming out of COP26. We don't know whether the money is going to flow until it's really flowed and until it's in the bank accounts of those receiving it or intended to receive it. But we need to see pledges of real credibility and then very, very soon after COP26, the action in terms of that finance flowing. We also need to see policies as well. You know, targets are nothing without policy. And it's painfully obvious that the UK government, for example, or the UK as a whole, for example, is not on track towards net zero with policies in place right now. There are huge questions in place around do we have plans to leverage up the private spending as well as add to that with public spending that's needed for these very fundamental infrastructural changes that we'll need around electric vehicle charging, around heat pumps, around carbon capture and storage networks, around hydrogen production networks, and so on and so forth. So there have been lots of nice words so far, but we need to see the money and we need to see the policies in place. And that's not just true for the UK, but also all around the world. I use the UK there merely as as an exemplar, I think, of a country that's talking a good game and has legislated targets, but really needs to set the policies in place very, very quickly and credibly right now. We've obviously got Alok Sharma as the UK representative to COP26. I noted that the department that you worked for, Department of Energy and Climate Change, no longer exists. And I guess now your focus is on working with maybe the Treasury, but also with Bayes. Do you think that the government should put in place a new separate 
department and portfolio for climate change and that not having this actually harms effective policy making if it's being bundled up into business and, and energy as well? It's an interesting question. I thought about this a little. At first I was, I think when DEC or Department of Energy and Climate Change was subsumed into the Business Energy and Industrial Strategy Department several years ago, I was a little concerned about that because the words climate change had disappeared from the title of a government department. I feel on balance, though, that it's not a concern and that actually it may be an advantage to have the climate change portfolio within Bayes. And I think the reason why I feel that is because Bayes is the latest incarnation of a department that goes all the way back to the, the Department of Trade and Industry, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago. The word or the concept of industrial policy has always been a difficult one, not just for the current Conservative government, but for many other governments, because it speaks to a perhaps overly interventionist steering of the way that the economy operates and grows. And I think the fact that industrial strategy has been incorporated into a department name is quite encouraging, actually. I think that Western societies or industrialised societies, if you like, are particularly the sort of more laissez-faire Anglo-Saxon capitalist societies. I think that they're a lot more at peace with the concept of industrial policy and steering and nudging economies in the direction towards societal goals. And I think that that is a good thing. So you know, there are many, many other stresses on the world apart from climate change right now. And um, I think having a climate change portfolio within Bayes is a useful way of steering industrial policy in hopefully a sustainable direction. So I'm relaxed about that. I don't think we need climate change as a specific or separate department in order to signal the seriousness of the issue. I agree that it obviously needs to be fully incorporated into all elements of all government departments, really. So having a separate department might mean it's a bit siloed off and as actually not as an effective negotiator with the rest of the other government departments. And I just wanted to change tack a bit and focus on your research at Imperial currently. And one of the topics which you focus on are IAMs. We've obviously learned a bit about these in our course this year in climate change management and finance. But for our listeners who might not know what an IAM is, it would be great if you would be able to explain a bit more about them. Yes, I'm very happy to talk about IAMs all day, actually. I mean, one of the main reasons for coming to Imperial and taking the opportunity to become an academic was to learn more about IAMs because they are the basis, the bedrock, if you like, around low carbon pathways analysis, which shows how society and the economy can transition from fossil fuel intensive to low fossil fuel and perhaps zero carbon over time. They're also the source, if you like, of estimates of how much it will cost to tackle climate change. And some flavours of IAM can also give us an indication of what the benefits of tackling climate change are in terms of the avoided damages to economy and society of lowering temperatures around the world. So if you think about just from first principles, if we want to know the extent to which the world will warm and the ways in which we can stop that from happening, we need some structure in place, some some model which represents how society and the economy will develop over time, over several decades in the future, because we care about long-term warming of the Earth's atmosphere and the oceans and so on. We need some way of relating that socio-economic development to the demand for goods and services 
like energy goods and services. And by that, I mean all of the energy that we need to transport us around to heat and cool and light our homes and operate the appliances in those homes and the energy that goes into our manufacturing and industrial plants, the energy that goes into our agricultural activities. So we need a sense of how much energy we'll use. We need a sense of how much food we'll need going forward. We'll need a sense of how we'll use our land going forward. So we'll need some sort of model representation of the energy system, our transport system, our industrial production system, our electricity production system, our building systems, and so on. We'll need a representation of our agricultural and land systems. And then we can ask these models once they represent, and these are mathematical computer models that represent these systems through different equations, we can then ask those models to project forward and say, look, if society develops in this way, what will that mean in terms of energy usage, food demand and land demand? And what will that then mean in terms of emissions of the different greenhouse gases that cause warming? And then we can further ask those models, what will those greenhouse gas emissions do to warming of the atmosphere? And there we can take insights from climate models, which are computer models that represent the sort of fluid dynamics, if you like, of the Earth's atmosphere and the oceans and give us a sense of how emissions change into temperature anomalies and warming and so on. So these models are structures which bring together lots of different assumptions and allow us to project forward how much the world will warm as a result of all of our socioeconomic activities. And more than that, we can specify different ways of doing things in these models. So we can allow them to produce electricity, generate electricity using solar photovoltaic panels or wind turbines or coal-fired power plants or gas-fired power plants and so on. And so we can then specify different aspects of these technologies, including their costs, the way that they perform, when they'll be available, the extent to which they can be scaled up and grown over time. And if you think about it, putting all of that into these models allows us to come up with alternative futures. You know, what would it mean if we develop a long, a high emissions, high temperature change pathway in terms of technologies and behaviours that we use? And what would it mean if we instead develop a longer, lower temperature pathway? And what are the relative costs of that? So this is essentially what an integrated assessment model is. And there are different flavours of them, as I alluded to before. Some of them can also be designed to estimate what economic damages occur as a result of different levels of warming. But they seem fairly innocuous and harmless the way that I've described them, but they've become very controversial in terms of how influential they may have been in terms of setting the direction of travel for low carbon technology investment, for different climate targets, emissions reduction targets, and so on. So a really long explanation, but I hope that gives you a bit of a sense of what these things are. That was really helpful and definitely really useful to get it from you yourself. So obviously you've been delving deep into problems as a topic for your research. And obviously the clue is in the name, as you said, but integration is key for all the different disciplines, which is really interesting. I was also wondering to what extent are IAMs integrated into policy? And this again touches back on the question of how much academia can influence policy. But I was wondering if IAMs were a specific part of your research that you would use to convey messages to governments. I think they've most definitely been very influential in policy making because they have delivered messages around what mixes of technologies are likely to be very important in a low carbon future. And so 
we know that there is a big trend towards decarbonizing electricity and electrification of end use sectors. So moving towards electric transport, electric building heating, electrification even of higher temperature industrial processes in iron and steel, potentially chemicals and, and maybe even cement making as well. So much of that has come from the energy system representations within IAMS. Other important and influential things that have come from IAMS are the pathways in terms of greenhouse gas emissions reduction pathways that are consistent with different temperature targets. So thinking about the Committee on Climate Change in the UK, for example, in 2019, it published in May a net zero strategy. And it was a very, very detailed look at all sectors of the UK economy and how they can make a contribution towards achieving net zero emissions in the UK by 2050. IAM wasn't used in that analysis. It was much more of an in-depth, bottom-up sectoral analysis of how much could be done in all of the different parts of the UK economy. Nevertheless, the target of 2050 net zero greenhouse gases was informed by and referenced back to global greenhouse gas emissions reduction pathways that were produced by a variety of integrated assessment models. So I was peripherally involved. I had a small role in the Committee on Climate Change's Net Zero report and had lots of communications with the team there about the messages from, but also the limitations of IAMs and the extent to which they could and could not be used to inform the the UK's target. So they continue to be very influential, I think, in policy making. I think there's a healthy realisation that they do have limitations and they can't provide the full answer. They can only provide a sort of computer modelled view of how the future might unfold, but that the real future is much messier and needs to take into account all sorts of societal, political economy and distributional issues as well. I also thought it would be useful to discuss IAM's limitations. As you said, they're not perfect and they just do offer a moral representation of what society could be. Also just curious as to the limitations in terms of scalability. You mentioned there are global IAMs, but obviously countries might be more focused on um, IAM for their countries. You mentioned the UK Committee on Climate Change was looking at a net zero strategy just for the UK and looking at UK IAMs only. Does this not just take all emphasis off the global south? I think the key is is granularity, really, and... You know, if we're thinking about lower income countries, those are not well represented in the global integrated assessment models, and they will be facing very, very country specific, society specific issues in terms of how they deal with the impacts of climate change, but also how they decarbonize and the extent to which they will need to do that going forward. And so, yes, IAMs can give you only very, very rough and ready messages for particular regions. And what we really need there is, first and foremost, capacity building, so that stakeholders within those countries understand how to conceptualize and simulate energy agricultural land systems, They don't necessarily need to use IAMs to do that. They can use more simple accounting tools. You know, one of the great benefits, I think, or one of the great advantages of the the 2050 calculators that were first developed within the Department of Energy and Climate Change under the leadership of the late David Mackay, who was then the chief scientific advisor and a sort of former academic, going back to our earlier conversation there. One of the beauties of the global calculators is that they're quite simple Excel spreadsheet based tools. They're really powerful, actually, if they're turned into country specific calculators 
co-developed with stakeholders in those countries. They're a really powerful tool for not just getting everyone thinking about decarbonisation, but also then having a nice, quite easy to use, understand tool of what the different options are to decarbonise and then sort of thinking about the trade-offs or synergies between those options. So, you know, that that's a much more basic tool, but also a more transparent tool than IAMS and probably a much more useful one. We're very much in a world of national action. You know, the Paris Agreement's architecture is designed around different countries pledging around what they think they can do in their most ambitious sense. And that calls for national and perhaps even subnational level modelling. So the IAMs can continue, if you like, to provide some high level messages around the big picture. But yeah, I think going forward, the key is really to develop national modelling and national analysis capabilities. I just also wanted to turn to a final topic, which we actually discussed earlier, but also you recently wrote a blog post about, which again obviously feeds into our wider discussions around economic growth, sustainable development, and replacing DDP with SDP, as you term it, which is sustainable domestic product. I was just curious as to why you think that would be an improvement and how that could potentially work in practice. So yeah, in a sense, I was just throwing out some ideas with the terminology, if you like, because there has been a lot of thinking about alternatives to gross domestic product. There's a well-documented series of criticisms around GDP and the many limitations it has in terms of what it doesn't account for. You know, it doesn't reflect activity in the informal economy or that which isn't captured by prices and market activity and so on and so forth. Doesn't account for depreciation or degradation to physical or or natural capital. So, of course, in the world that we live right now, when we know that we're facing multiple planetary boundaries, but also multiple socio-economic stresses and all sorts of new risks as well, you know, it seems as though GDP is deserving of new scrutiny. And there are a number of different activities and projects going on to think about how it could be replaced. I think what I was arguing in my blog post, and actually that was stimulated by discussion with with some of the climate change management and finance students and others, was GDP continues to remain the main measure of development. Probably there's some inertia around that. It's what everyone's used to talking about, so therefore it retains its position. But it has a kind of familiarity with people, and the shift from gross domestic product to sustainable domestic product is probably very, very challenging in terms of all the new calculations that would need to be done to take into account the extent to which goods produced are properly measured in terms of the true environmental cost that goes into producing them. But it's nevertheless a sort of perhaps it's less of a intimidating shift away from gross domestic products than some perhaps more esoteric indices around, you know, happiness index, for example, that have been proposed. So I haven't thought all of the mechanics through of how one would produce a sustainable domestic product measure, but I think it wouldn't be too different from some of the proposals that are out there. I think what I wanted to capture in my blog post was that we really must start thinking about all of the consequences of our societal and economic activities now, because we are in this increasingly precarious position where we're having a notable and noticeable impact on our environment and on the sort of safe 
operating space in which our economy and our societal interactions are able to function. And so we must do better than simply falling back on GDP whenever we want to look at the health of our economy. You just mentioned looking at if we're encroaching or going beyond a safe operating space in terms of the realms of our planetary feasibility and in our natural resources. And that seemed to me to also align with Kate Rower's Donut Economics proposition. I was also curious as to your thoughts on this, as she's written a book about it and has given several talks about it. But I wasn't entirely sure if you felt that this was actually feasible or more of an idealistic worldview. I think it's feasible in as much as we have to think in Kate Raworth's terms. I really like the way that she has expressed the donut. You know, it reflects the planetary boundaries on the outside in terms of ecological limits, but then it also speaks to a number of sustainable development goals on the inside in terms of what we should want from a good and functioning and sustainable society. And, you know, that sort of sweet spot, the, the kind of, I don't know what she calls it, the gooey bit of the donut in the middle where we need to be operating is a really nice visual way of representing where we need to be. There are other ways of doing it, but I think that she recognises so much that the power of an idea comes from the way that it's conveyed, and it can often be in a picture or a diagram, and that that sticks with people long after the detailed explanations of what it means have, have faded away. So I think it's a really clever and enlightening representation of how we can operate within an area of safety. I really hope for her that it continues to gain traction. You know, it's obviously made a big splash, but operationalizing it is challenging. And I think it's the transition from the messy, still sort of simple circular flow economy world thinking that we're in now to one where we're much more cognizant across the world of the, the different stresses on the outside of the donut, if you like, the ecological stresses, and then on the inside of the donut in terms of uh, inequality, poor health, lack of education, and so on and so forth. You know, getting to that is difficult, and that means dealing with some really thorny issues around vested interests and power and the outsized influence of very, very rich and so on. So the real battle, if you like, is not to achieve is not around whether that is a good representation or not it's how we achieve it i don't think it can be a pipe dream though because i don't think there's an alternative sustainability is kind of almost tautological term you know if we're not acting sustainably then we're not going to be here so we have to act sustainably we don't really have another option definitely very thought-provoking and interesting comments thank you just before we finish today i wanted to ask you a couple of questions that we ask all our guests i was wondering if you had any words of advice for any of our listeners interested in a similar career path to yourself obviously it's jumped around a bit but as you mentioned i think that's definitely accorded you with a more holistic approach to each of your roles so i'd be interested to hear your thoughts That's a tough question because it's really difficult to give general advice when so much has been context specific. And I think personally, I've been really lucky in terms of the breaks that I've had. I got a position at the Grantham Institute here at Imperial College 11 years ago, which was a research fellowship at a time when I didn't have a PhD and didn't have an academic background. And, you know, that was not very likely to happen in my view. I just applied on the off chance that they would see the benefits of having someone with the policy experience rather than the academic research experience and 
I was lucky that they did do that. I suppose the general thing I can say for people, though, is that people listening to this podcast are probably already converts to the idea that what the world needs is not for them to go out and make lots of money, but what the world needs is for clever and thoughtful and reflecting or reflective, I guess is the word, people to think about how they can help the world. The the one bit of advice I would have is continue doing that. Always think about what is the work you want to do or are doing at the moment. How does that relate to the problems that you want to solve or the problems that the world faces? Because you'll find that very satisfying. And every job, every career has its low points. Every uh, career has its times when you think this is really difficult or I'm overwhelmed or why am I doing this? I find it's incredibly useful to just be able to take a step back and remind yourself, why am I doing this? And if you've chosen a career which is around solving public and societal problems and delivering us towards a safer operating space, just to go back to that phrase, then please do that regularly and you'll get a lot more satisfaction, I think, out of what you're doing. So that would be my main advice. Thank you. That was great. Just as a last question, if our listeners could take away one thing from this episode of the podcast, what would you want it to be? Hmm, The toughest question of all is the last one. I think the one thing I want people to take away at this point in time is that there are ways in which you can look at the world right now which seem to make things look quite bleak in terms of the environmental degradation, in terms of some of the societal and geopolitical stresses that we are facing, but that there is reason for and room for a lot of optimism because there are a number of people, organisations and institutions now that are rapidly learning to recognise that we live in a society which on the one hand is delivering increasing benefits in terms of incomes, in terms of reducing inequalities in some areas, for example, but that is facing a lot of risks. But what I would like to say is that, you know, there is room for optimism because there are lots of societal and technological solutions out there. And there is a lot that we can learn from certain successes in the past that we can carry forward to deal with a whole host of societal risks, not just climate change, but all sorts of other issues that we are no doubt going to be facing in the coming years. So, you know, be mindful of those, but don't be weighed down by them. Be optimistic in the face of them because the solutions are there. Thanks, AJ. And definitely it's it's great to end on a positive note with with knowledge that everyone as individuals can help in combating climate change. So that's really nice to end on that. And finally, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Phoebe. I've really enjoyed it.